Good morning. Welcome. Uh, this is our last class in this uh, study on the person of Christ. I'm a bit, I'm a bit saddened by that, to be honest with you. The, we, I always enjoy these Sunday school classes. The one on the Trinity and this one on the person of Christ were especially enjoyable to me, at least, to study and prepare for and to teach. I hope you've uh, benefited from, from these teachings. Pretty awesome, right? Uh, at the beginning I said, you think you know Jesus. Well, and, and, and we do, truly. Um, there's a simple kind of faith, and it is pleasing to the Lord. Uh, but doctrine and theology is awesome. Faith, seeking understanding. It's really great to dig into this stuff and to um, increase our understanding of who God is and who Christ is. So uh, it, We know Him better now. Yeah, Isn't it weird how people think, uh, well, you don't need to do theology you just need to know Jesus. Well, that's what we're doing. <laughs> that's what we're doing. We're seeking to know Him better uh, when we do theology. Um, so praise the Lord for this book and for this study. It's been uh, really good, I think. Let's open in a word of prayer, and then we'll go through Lesson 13. Our Father in Heaven, I pray that You would continue to help us. Give us understanding of Christ. Uh, help us to know who He is and by knowing who He is, I pray that we would have a better appreciation for what He has accomplished. Uh, may our love for Him increase. May our confidence in Him increase as well, that we would see that indeed our salvation has been earned for us by Him. And in Him we have been reconciled to You, O God. We thank You for this great gift of salvation in Christ Jesus. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. I should have done this a long time ago, of course, uh, but I, I, maybe I did make mention of it earlier in the study. There's a wonderful glossary in the back of this book. I hope you found it. Um, it could be very helpful uh, when you're encountering all of these technical terms, add extra, add intra, adoptionism. I'm just reading the first few entries here. Uh, there's uh, entries having to do with some of the heresies that have popped up throughout the history of the church. Apollinarianism, for example. Uh, we've talked about the communicatio idiomatum, the communication of attributes. It's in here. Uh, the extra, the Calvinisticum, right? Um, that term has popped up an awful lot. I was especially wanting to draw your attention to the entry, uh, um, uh, the entry on the term person. We've talked an awful lot about the difference between person and nature, person and nature, uh, and there's a wonderful entry here uh, concerning uh, the term person. One thing that came to, to my, uh, into my um, uh, understanding as I was interacting with folks is that we use the term person in a casual way, but there's a theological way to use the term person as well, a theological and philosophical way. And we've been using that term person in a uh, theological way and not in that casual way. Um, did I say this last time? I can't remember if I said this during the last class. But we use the word person to refer to an individual. Look at that person over there. And what we mean by that is we're, we're referring to the whole person, body and soul. Um, uh, all of the, 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 the faculties of the soul, including the theological concept of person. So we have to realize that we're using the term person in a technical way in this study, not referring to a whole individual, body and soul, uh, but referring to the acting subject, the subject that acts through a nature. Uh, that's the technical way of using the term. So I just wanted to draw your attention to that, um, uh, th this little, um, what is it called? I just said it. 
glossary in the back. I think it's very helpful uh, to, to make sense of these terms that we've been throwing around. Let me do this uh, review thing again, uh, because we've broken this, this, these last two chapters, the last, very last chapter is very brief, but we've broken these last two chapters into three parts. I'm glad we did it. We needed to move slowly, uh, because it's here that uh, Wellam really seeks to just lay it out there. Here is what Orthodox Christology looks like, you know. Uh, and so, first of all, he addressed the Divine Son, considering Christ as the Divine Son, and he made three points. The person or subject of the Incarnation is the Eternal Divine Son. Two, as the Divine Son, the second person of the Triune Godhead, He is the exact image, correspondence, and word of the Father, and is thus fully God. Three, as the Divine Son, He has always existed in an eternally ordered relation to the Father and the Spirit, which now is gloriously revealed in the Incarnation. So, a wonderful consideration of Jesus Christ as the Divine Son. Three very clear points made there for us. Here's what we must say about Jesus Christ as the Divine Son. Uh, next, Wellam deals with Jesus Christ uh, in the Incarnation. And he says three things. The Incarnation is an act of addition, not subtraction. The Incarnation is an act of addition, not subtraction, meaning this, that the Divine Son, the second person of the Trinity, assumed or took to Himself a human nature so that He became the acting subject of that human nature. Uh, stated negatively, the Divine Son did not divest Himself of what He has always been for all eternity. He did not give up His deity. He did not give up any attributes, um, any of His attributes. He did not cease to be what He always was when He took to Himself the human nature. So the incarnation is not an act of subtraction, it's an act of addition. So when we talk about uh, the eternal Son of God humbling Himself and emptying Himself, if we may use that term uh, as the Scriptures do, we're not talking about Him emptying Himself of His divinity, but of taking to Himself humanity, a human nature, and coming in this lowly form so that the glory that He has always uh, possessed and, and displayed in the heavenly realm was veiled within the incarnation. And glory itself is not an essential attribute of God. It's a manifestation of, uh, of God in the heavenly realm. God is a most pure spirit. He's invisible, but He manifests His glory in the heavenly realm. Uh, when Christ was incarnate, that glory was not manifest. He, he, he was not glowing, in other words. He didn't have a halo around His head or any such thing, you know. He looked like a common man, a humble man. Uh, he, he came in this lowly form, having assumed or taken to Himself a human nature. Uh, five, the virgin conception, uh, conception was the glorious means by which the incarnation took place. So, how did the eternal Son of God take to Himself a human nature? Well, uh, through the virgin birth. And six, the human nature assumed by the Divine Son is fully human, unfallen, and sinless. That was a really wonderful section, I think, uh, there uh, around page 158. Um, the human nature assumed by the Divine Son is fully human. Uh, so, He assumed a full human nature, body and soul, with all the faculties of soul. Uh, also, this human nature, we should say, was unfallen and sinless. Uh, he was not born under Adam in the way that we are, um, but was born upright and lived a life of perfect obedience, 
uh, for us for multiple reasons, the most important one being that it was the divine Son who was the acting subject in Christ. Uh, so who, who, is the one, who is the one acting? It is the second person of the Trinity, the divine Son who is the acting subject. Also in Christ's humanity we know that He was anointed by the Spirit beyond measure so that He might offer up true human obedience to God on our behalf. Uh, so, again, the human nature assumed by the Divine Son is fully human, unfallen, and sinless. Now we come to our lesson for today, Lesson 13. We're going to look at the two natures, um, Section C. We are going to look at Christ as our New Covenant Head, and Christ as our Lord and Savior. And then finally, we will very briefly look at Chapter 9, Recovering the Centrality of Christ. I think I'll just read a section from that chapter instead of... I did not outline it uh, for the sake of... I ran out of time this last week. That's what it was about. So, let's look at these things. The two natures. In the Incarnation, the Eternal Son took on a new mode of existence as a man. The Divine Son... The Divine Son... And I'm doing this slowly now so that all of our brains can catch up, right? The Divine Son now subsists and acts in two natures without changing the integrity of either nature, confusing them, or melding them into a divine human hybrid. The Son's action in His human nature then does not override the limitations of that nature. The Son truly lives, experiences the world, and acts as a man. So that is point seven. It's a wonderful statement Uh, And it is very much a true statement, one that we must confess. In the Incarnation, the Eternal Son took on a new mode of existence as a man. Uh, The Son assumed a human nature and became the acting subject in that nature. I I think the thing that I wanted to say here um, was this. Uh, It was when I was driving down to Temecula with Lindsay and the boys. We were playing... Uh, the audio Bible um, over the, the speakers there, and I think we were we were listening to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, weren't we? Where the sufferings of Christ leading up to the crucifixion are all are all stated. And, and as I was listening to that with this study in the back of my mind, I'm thinking this is just incredible. Who who exper- who was who was the person? who experienced really and truly these sufferings? Who was the person who experienced these sufferings, all of this mistreatment? Who was the person who was mocked and spat upon? Who was the person who was whipped? Who was the person who was, who, who was hanged on that tree? Who was it? You, you can say Jesus, but I'm, I'm asking you to, I'm pressing you a little bit further. I'm not talking about person in, in the sense of individual. Who was the person? Who was the, who was the subject who experienced those things? God did. The second person of the Trinity, the Divine Son. Isn't that incredible to think? When, when, you, say, like, when you say that, it almost seems wrong. God? God died? God died for us? (laughs) There is a sense in which that is not so. God did not die for us according to His divine nature. The divine nature cannot die. 
It cannot. It's weird though, isn't it, to say that God can't do certain things or experience certain things? It's true though. God, in His divinity, cannot suffer. God, in His divinity, cannot be tempted. God, in His divinity, cannot die. God, in His divinity, cannot bleed. God, in His divinity, cannot weep. You understand? And whenever the Scriptures speak of Him as having remorse or something like that, it's anthropopathic language. It's the language of human experience being attributed to the divine so that we might know something true about Him, but we have to understand what's going on there. God and His divinity cannot experience things that humans experience because He is a most pure spirit. He is the I Am. He is pure act. He is simple. He, doesn't pro- he cannot process the world or experience the world in the way that you and I do. Can God learn? No. <laughs> he cannot learn. Can God grow in knowledge? I just said that. See, that, ex- that exposes my ignorance right there. Uh, can, can, God, can God grow in wisdom? Can he, can he learn? Can He take in the world? No. He's, he is the I Am. He is all-knowing. Can He grow stronger, etc.? You understand what I'm saying? There are so many things that God cannot do because His nature will not allow it. Um, He is. So, when we say that God died for us, when we say that God suffered for us, we are speaking of the person of the Son experiencing human suffering through the human nature that He took to Himself. The divine nature did not become human, but the person of the Son assumed a human nature so as to experience human life. Now we have a great high priest and mediator who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Who is this? Who is this one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin? It is the person of the Son incarnate. And He was tempted, not according to His divine nature, God cannot be tempted, according to His divinity, but in His human nature. So Jesus Christ perceived the world just as we perceive it. He saw through eyes just like ours, right? Human eyes. He took the world in through His eyes into His human mind, in His human nature, he really didn't want to experience things like pain. And so he experienced human angst over the, over the fact that he was about to experience human pain. He sweat drops of blood. His angst was so strong. And yet he surrendered his human will to the will of the Father. He did not follow his affections, his human affections, But he surrendered himself, his human will, to the will of the Father, saying, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Isn't it incredible? Who was the one who did all of that? The person of the Son. He was the acting subject. It's tremendous to consider. Number eight. Given given the ontological priority of God the Son, in the Incarnation the Son was not limited to acting through His human nature alone, since He continued to act through His divine nature 
as He has from eternity. Given the ontological priority of God the Son. Uh, so again the question is, who, who is the, the person who is acting? It is the Son. It is not some other person. It is the Son of God who is acting in the Incarnation. And given the priority of the Son's existence... We must say that the Son was not limited to acting through His human nature alone, since He continued to act through His divine nature as He has from all eternity. So when He took to Himself a human nature, He did not cease to be what He always was. These two statements help us think through the act of the Divine Son in both natures, Wellam says on page 165. And then I have a note to myself here to read, first full paragraph on page 165, under point 8. Here it is. The next two statements help us to think through the action of the Divine Son in both natures. In in assuming a human nature, the Divine Son becomes visibly present in a new mode of existence as a man. In and through His human nature, the Son lives and acts within the normal physical, mental, volitional, and psychological capacities of an unfallen, sinless human nature. As the Son, He experienced the wonder and weakness of of human life. He grew in wisdom and physical stature. He experienced tears of joy and suffered death and a glorious resurrection for His people and their salvation. Um, So much of that was just said a moment ago. The same Son who... The same Son, I guess I'm continuing on now here in my outline, who who experiences these things as a man, however also continues to live and act as He has done from eternity as God the Son in relation with the Father and the Spirit. Okay, so these two statements are are very important. The Son lives a fully human life, and yet the same Son uh, who has experienced these things as a man continues to live and act as He has done from eternity as God the Son in relation with the Father and the Spirit. What is this doctrine called, by the way? We've... The doctrine of the extra, right? Uh, that the, 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 the person of the Son was not fully contained, if you will, within the human nature of Christ, but existed beyond it, uh, thus the word extra. It's the doctrine of the extra. I think we'll get to that in just a moment in the outline. I did want to read these two passages that have been cited many times in um, this book having to do with this concept, but we've only read them, I think, one other time. I want to read them again. Uh, they, they demonstrate that the person of the Son, who took to Himself a human nature, continues to exist and act as God. Colossians 1, 16-17, For by Him, that is by the Son, or the Word of God, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through Him and for Him. This is a reference to the the second person of the Trinity. The Father created all things seen and unseen through the Son and by the Spirit. Uh, It's the same thing that John chapter 1 teaches. That in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word uh, was God. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was... Finish it for me. God. And... All things were made through Him, and then eventually it's stated that the Word became flesh. It it brings us to the Incarnation uh, there. He is before all things, I continue now in Colossians 1, and in Him all things hold together. That little phrase there 
is very significant. Um, not only was the world created through the Son, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but the Word continues to uphold the world or to hold the world together. A pretty awesome concept to consider, right? Um, did the Son cease to uphold the world when He became incarnate? No, He continued to uphold the world uh, even as He became incarnate. He, he continued to exist as He always has outside of and beyond uh, the incarnation that we are here uh, speaking of. Hebrews 1.3 says something similar. He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, etc. So Hebrews 1 also speaks of Christ, uh, the Son, in this way, the Son of God in this way. He never ceases to uphold the universe by the word of His power. So then in Christ there are two natures that remain distinct and retain their own attributes and integrity. Yet the Son is able to act through both natures. The Son then is not completely circumscribed. That's a good word. The Son is not completely circumscribed by His human nature. He is also able to act outside. And there is where we get the idea of extra. Outside His human nature and His divine nature as He has always done. To make sense of Christ's dual action... Theology has employed the resources of in hypostasia and the communicatio idiomatum and the extra. So these are three, these are three um, theological terms that have been used throughout the history of the church to make sense of all the biblical data. There's nothing wrong with doing that. There's nothing wrong with looking at the scriptures and going, how does all of this fit together? You know, all of these passages of Scripture, all of these facts and truths that are presented, how do they fit together? There's nothing wrong with bringing them together and then employing philosophical or theological terminology to explain uh, what, is, what is going on here. In hypostasia is the idea that Christ did not uh, come alongside another person in the Incarnation, but was in fact the person. He assumed a human nature that was personless and was always the person of the human nature from the moment of conception. Uh, the communicatio idiomatum is this idea that the, the, the joining together of the human and the divine natures lands on the person of the Son and not in the intermingling of the natures themselves. So that we might say that God shed His blood for us because it was the person of the Son who bled in his human nature. It's not that the divine nature can bleed, but it was the person of the Son who bled in his human nature. That is the communicatio idiomatum. And the extra we have just considered. The Son of God did not cease to be what he always was when he became incarnate. Okay. In fact, I got ahead of myself again. I have a bad habit of doing that. Um, Wellam uh, does return to these ideas of the in hypostatic union and Christ's dual agency. I misspelled dual earlier. Please forgive me. Uh, so let's move through this just for the sake of driving it home. In the incarnation, the divine Son personalized the human nature created for Him by triune action. The Son did not become or replace a human person, but assumed a human body-soul composite into His metaphysical identity. Um, the, pers the, the, the Christ, the, the humanity of of Christ was without a human person and hypostasia. Thus, when Jesus speaks, thinks, wills, and acts, he does so as the eternal Son through both natures. I, I didn't say that quite right. Um, 
the person of Christ, the, the person of the Son was always the person uh, who was the acting subject in the human nature of Christ. Thus, when Jesus speaks, thinks, wills, and acts, He does so as the eternal Son through both natures. As applied to Christ's humanity in hypostasia and tells the divine Son is now visibly present in the human nature He has assumed, the Son does not subsist by the human nature since He is God the Son. Instead, He subsists in the human nature He has assumed. One thing I love about this book is that there are some parts of it that are just very clear and very helpful, and you go, ah, and then Wellam does from time to time burrow down a little bit more deep, and he gets kind of technical. And I think this is one of those places uh, where Wellam gets a little bit more technical. He's wanting us to see that the Son, the person of the Son, does not subsist, or maybe we could say exist, by the human nature. The Son does not owe His existence to the human nature He has assumed. The Son owes His existence to the divine nature. Does that make sense? The Son is the I Am. The Son is the Eternal One, who always was, is, and always will be. The Son owes His existence to the divine nature and not to the human nature. So, the language is very precise here. The Son does not subsist by the human nature, since He is God the Son. Instead, He subsists in the human nature He has assumed. Yes? Does that make sense? This is why Jesus could say, before Abraham was, I am. That's why He could say that. And that's why He got Himself killed. Uh, also, according to the a definite purpose and foreknowledge of God, of course. But it enraged the Jews because they knew that when he said before Abraham was, I am, he was claiming to be very God. Yes, they understood exactly what he meant and they viewed it as blasphemy, but they did not understand their own scriptures. The communicatio idiomatum in Christ's dual agency. Now, um, Point A, alongside the emphasis on the unity of Christ's person in hypostasia, it is also necessary to affirm that the two natures remain distinct and retain their own integrity, thus upholding the creator-creature distinction even in the hypostatic union of Christ's deity and humanity. Uh, each nature retained its own attributes. The attributes of each nature may be predicated of the Son since He is the person of both natures, and so the communicatio is vital for making sense of the seemingly contradictory biblical data, eternal existence and birth, omnipotence and weariness, for example. And it helps in thinking through Christ's dual agency. So this doctrine here, the communicatio idiomatum, is crucial for us to make sense of what we see in the Scriptures. That Christ at times clearly displayed that He was not a mere man, uh, he has the ability, or he, he, he rather shows that he is um, omnipotent. He shows that he has had eternal existence, and yet we see at other points that he is clearly a man. He was born, he grew weary, etc. So this doctrine is crucial, the communicatio idiomatum. Each nature retained its own attributes. Um, there was not a mixing so that Christ was a superhuman or something less than divine. He was and is the God-man. And again, the attributes of each nature may be predicated 
of the Son, since He is the person of both natures. So, so who died for us? It is not improper to say God died for us, because it was the person of the Son. Point three, the extra and Christ's dual agency. The concept of the extra has been employed to make sense of this thinking, since the Creator has ontological priority over anything creaturely. The Divine Son has ontological priority over His human nature, and thus continues to have divine life outside of it. I think uh, that point has been made sufficiently clear. Uh, Now let us go to this uh, category of Christ as a new covenant head. And here we are kind of getting into the, the question of why did this have to be so? <laughs> Why was the incarnation necessary? Well, it was necessary because the Christ was sent uh, to, to be a representative for us, to be a new covenant head and to be our Lord and Savior. Eventually we will come to that. Point nine, by assuming a human nature, the Divine Son became the first man of a new creation. By assuming a human nature... The Divine Son became the first man of a new creation, perfectly qualified to be our great mediator and new covenant head. We must see him as a a second Adam, the first man of a new creation. Who was the first man of this creation? Adam was. And when Adam sinned, we all sinned in him because he was our covenant head. He was the head of or representative of that covenant of works that was made in the garden before sin entered into the world. But when Christ, the eternal Son of God, assumed a human nature, the divine Son became the first man, the last Adam, of a new creation. And He was perfectly qualified to be our great mediator and new covenant head. I didn't really connect this in my mind, but all of this teaching will be very helpful to Uh, understanding what is said in the sermon uh, this morning because there's a lot of talk of new creation uh, in Christ Jesus in the sermon this morning. Point A, as the incarnate Son, our Lord Jesus Christ became the first man of a new creation, our great mediator and new covenant head. As this man, he he reverses the work of the first Adam and and forages ahead, forges ahead, as the last Adam, our great trailblazer and champion. Owing to the Incarnation, God the Son becomes perfectly qualified to meet our every need for the forgiveness of sin. According to the Bible storyline, only the Incarnate Son could mediate the reconciliation of the triune Creator, Covenant God, and humans by offering Himself as a sinless, sufficient, substitutionary sacrifice such that God Himself redeems His people as man. (laughs) Who, Who is our Redeemer? God is our Redeemer. Specifically, the Father has redeemed His people through the Son and by the working of the Holy Spirit, the Son of God incarnate. Why could no mere man do this? Because all who are born into this world by way of ordinary generation or procreation are born in sin and in the guilt of sin. They do themselves sin, so they die, not for others, they cannot, but for their own sins. So someone greater than a mere man had to do this work. It had to be the Son of God incarnate according to the storyline of of, of Scripture. This is how God has redeemed His people by assuming a, a human nature Himself, the person of the Son, 
to suffer and to die in our place after living a perfectly righteous life. He is our new covenant head. He is also our Lord and Savior. Jesus, the Messiah, God the Son incarnate, is unique and alone Lord and Savior and thus demands our entire lives in faith, love, and obedience to Him. So all of a sudden we're getting really practical here, aren't we? Um, this, is, this is being pressed to us that because of who Christ is, we owe Him everything. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. Jesus is in a category all by Himself, given given who the triune God is in all His glory, aseity, and moral perfection, and given what sin is before God, it's no wonder that apart from the Divine Son's incarnation and His entire work for us, there is no salvation. There is, there is salvation found in no other name besides this one. Um, you know, that's very offensive to the world, isn't it? It's very offensive to those who are a part of other religions to hear the exclusivity of Christ um, articulated. There is salvation in no other name. There is salvation in no other religion. There is only this gospel. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ is going to benefit us, then He must be the God-man. And so even some of these other religions that claim to have faith in Jesus Christ but make Him something less than the eternal Son of God come in the flesh, i.e. Mormonism, they do not have a Savior. They do not have a Savior. Um, they, with their lips, make the same sound that we do. <laughs> they claim to have some sort of faith in Jesus Christ, but their conception of Him is so very different than what the Bible teaches. He is a creature, not the Creator, <laughs> not the one through whom the world was created. You, you understand it's not Orthodox Christology that they profess. Therefore, they do not have a new covenant head. They do not have a Lord and Savior. Uh, in order for us to be saved from our sins, it has to be this Jesus, the Jesus of Holy Scriptures, the God-man who lived and died and ascended for us. He is in a category all by Himself. For this reason, it's not enough merely to state correctly who Jesus is according to the church's confessions. We must also be led to worship. Uh, we must also be led to worship, faith in Him alone, proclamation, and a glad and willing submission to His Lordship in every area of our lives. Uh, this study should lead us to worship, uh, brothers and sisters. This study should increase our love for our Lord. This study should increase our obedience uh, to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I wanted to just read uh, this last little portion here on page 179, recovering the centrality of Christ here. Well, I'm in this chapter kind of deals with some of the challenges that we face uh, in, in our modern day. Um, earlier in this book, we noted that there are Christological errors that are popping up even amongst so-called conservative evangelical churches, you know, that we need to be aware of. We've already covered all of that. And so I'll just read page 179, the last full paragraph, on to page 180. My goal in writing this book is to call the church back to what is central, the glory of Christ. My hope is that this volume will help to equip the church to know better the basic scriptural data regarding Christ and the church's theological confession of Him. 
My prayer is that in spending time thinking through the glory and majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ, readers of this book will be led in some small way to a renewed delight to know and proclaim Christ and Him alone, Colossians 1.28. Indeed, the church first exists to know and proclaim the glory of the triune God in the face of Christ, and to move away from this center will lead the church away from life and health. One of Scripture's culminating visions is Revelation 4-5. through It is a breathtaking vision in which the triune God is seen in all His glory, holiness, authority, sovereignty, and self-sufficiency. In this vision, we are reminded about what is truly central and important, the Lord on His throne and the Lamb who was slain. In every generation, Christians need this vision to renew them. We need to be reminded about who is central, who is worthy, who is to be obeyed, and who is our only hope and salvation. As a result of thinking through the glory of our Lord Jesus in Scripture and theology, may we be led to confess with the angelic hosts, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That is Revelation 5.13. Wonderful conclusion to this study, don't you think? We have a few minutes remaining. Are there any questions? Yeah, no, that's, that's very good. Um, the scriptures say that no one has ever seen God and no one can. So when Abraham and when Moses and when the people of Israel saw God on the mountain, let's say at Sinai, they, they saw a manifestation of His glory. It's not as if they saw God as He is. I, we do not have the capacity to perceive Him as He is. So they experienced, they encountered a revelation of, of God. They encountered a manifestation of His glory. And I would say that the same thing is true of the heavenly realm, that God's glory is manifest there. Um, in fact, uh, the, the elders of Israel were given a glimpse up into heaven, into the throne room of heaven. Remember, they looked up through the, 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 the translucent floor of heaven, as it were, and they beheld the glory of God. But that too is a manifestation of God's glory. It, it is not as if God is light particles and yet He manifests His glory in, in, in radiant light. He is light in the sense that He is purity and truth, etc. Uh, and so yes, the same thing would be said of Christ. Um, uh, what did Christ say? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Well, in a sense, of course that is true. Christ said it. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Well, not in in the same way that the glory of God is manifest in heaven, and there is a sense in which we cannot even see the Father because He's a most pure spirit, invisible, etc. We can't experience Him with our senses, our, our five senses. Uh, but yet, it was true. He who had seen Christ had seen the Father because He was the Son of God incarnate, a, the, the Word from the Father, a manifestation of God with us. The whole idea of revelation is pretty amazing, isn't it? Um, there is a sense in which God is incomprehensible. You, you understand that? That, that w- Another way to say it is this. We do not know God 
And we cannot know God in the same way that God knows himself. We cannot know God in the same way that God knows himself. But yet we can know him truly because he has determined to disclose himself to us. But when he discloses himself to us, as Calvin says, he lisps to us as a nurse lists to an infant. In other words, don't be offended by this. God speaks to us in baby talk. You understand? So just as we speak, just as we condescend to the level of our little children when we speak to them, little ones, so too God has condescended to us. He has spoken in to us truthfully. He has revealed himself to us truthfully in a way that we can comprehend. But yet there is a sense in which God is beyond all of that. We, we know God truly, but we do not know God in the way that God knows himself. Because he is, in a sense, incomprehensible. Scott. Pretty interesting to think about how we how we learn and how we come to know things through our senses. And everything that we are is finite, it's limited. There are things that are just beyond us, beyond our ability to perceive and to comprehend. It's a part of what it is to be human, it's a part of what it is to be creature. Um, but God is wholly other. The finite cannot comprehend the infinite, I think is a, a famous expression, you know, to kind of articulate this idea here. If you're feeling small right now, that's probably a good thing. That's, yeah, that's a very wonderful statement. What page is that on again? 70? Bottom of 70 to top of 171. Bottom of 70, top of 71. 171. 171. Yeah, 170 to 171. That's a very good statement. Um, there's mystery, but, it's, but, there, but it's, not, it's not irrational. What word did he use? Contradictory. There's nothing contradictory in it. It, it might blow our minds. It must, it, it's... it's Impossible in some ways for us to totally grasp, but it's not contradictory. Uh, I, I hope that you're be better able to appreciate and understand how the person of the Son could be the acting subject in two na natures, the divine and the human, after going through this study. Anything else? Ben? I was just going to say that 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's right. We will, be, we will behold His glory in a much greater sense than we do now in glory in the new heavens and new earth or when the Lord takes us home. But it's not as if we will come to an instantaneous full grasp of divinity, you know, of the divine one. Uh, there, there will always be this mystery and this marveling and this pleasure that is taken in the eternal God who reveals himself to us for, for all eternity. Yeah, it, it'll never be exhausted. That's good. Okay, we are out of time, and this is the end of our study. We will take two Sundays off. Two Sundays off. Um, I'm going to have Mike order those books, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. We'll take 12 weeks to go through those as I add three more. Um, Yeah, so two weeks off for us, and then we will jump into that study on the doctrine of the church. We've been um, hearing about the doctrine of the church in the morning sermons. There's been this series, but, but this will be from a different angle a bit. And I think it's going to be very helpful to us. So 12 weeks on the doctrine of the church is coming next. So please be here and encourage others to be present as well. Um, I'm blessed to have a church um, that actually has an appetite for stuff like this. Um, I love it. It's wonderful. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we thank you that you have redeemed us. And we thank you for the wisdom with which you have redeemed us. This plan of salvation is marvelous for us to consider. We thank you, O God, that you have determined to suffer for us and to die for us so as to reconcile us to you, O Father. I pray, God, that you would be glorified. Father, would you receive all glory, honor, and praise through the Son and by the Spirit. Help us to worship you, triune God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.